If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Across the centuries, Eastern Europe has been the setting for some of history's most climactic events. Yet barely 30 years since the collapse of communism heralded the so-called end of history, are we now witnessing the region's disappearance? In his new book, Goodbye Eastern Europe, Jacob Mikanowski presents a world that once bristled with cultural diversity, whose communities, traditions and ideologies endured throughout the Ottoman Empire and the Soviet Union. Danny Bird caught up with Jacob to find out more. To start us off, what inspired you to write this book? So I began writing this book after a, a prolonged period of teaching and writing about Eastern Europe. I was in a PhD program for, for Russian and Eastern European history. And this is about 2013, 2014, especially 2013, before the uh, Russian invasion of Crimea. And it felt like the interest in Eastern Europe was at an all-time low. Eastern Europe tends to, amount of attention it gets is proportional to how disturbed it is, how much conflict there is. And this is a really peaceful moment in Eastern European history. Russia had not yet invaded. The EU had expanded. And the expansion was going very well. And it was very hard to get people interested in 
Eastern European literature and stories about Eastern Europe and Eastern European history, it felt like the region was disappearing off the map of contemporary consciousness. And I'm from there. I'm Polish, Polish-Jewish, grew up speaking Polish, grew up uh, spending a lot of time there. And I've been immersed in Eastern European history, literature, art, kind of all my life, but especially since college. And I find it so fascinating and so has so much to say to our present condition. I thought, this is a real shame. If I can, can I find a way to make this very difficult, very broad story more relevant, more accessible to people to kind of lay out an introduction, kind of a beginner's guide to what Eastern Europe is and how it got that way. And that was really the, the origin of it. I noticed whilst reading it that you draw on a lot of different figures and historical personalities from throughout the history of the region, uh, notably literary figures. I just wondered if you could perhaps expand on the particular figures that inspired you to write this book. I've always kind of lived under the shadow of Polish literature in a weird way. I, I grew up in America. I grew up in a very suburban, very dull, bland, kind of rural suburban part of Pennsylvania. But traveling from there back to Poland, back to Poland of the of the 80s, the kind of frozen, broken economy after solidarity. And then I lived in Poland during the kind of crazy days of the early 90s, and the very chaotic transition to capitalism. But as I just when I was, this is a complicated story. I won't get into the, all the details, but my real name is Bruno. It's, uh, I use my middle name, which is after my grandfather, but my real name is Bruno. And I was named a little bit accidentally after Bruno Schultz, the great Polish writer, who uh, actually growing up, I wasn't that interested in. And then the moment you move away from home, you want to know everything about your roots. And I started really getting into Bruno Schultz, who was a very strange figure very kind of odd personal figure, but uh, an interwar Poland, a Jewish-Polish writer who wrote, was Jewish, but wrote in Polish from a very small town in the East and was now Ukraine, South of Lviv, and writes these lush, complex, beautifully poetic stories, kind of magical realist stories, all set in this tiny, or at least small town in, in what's now Southwestern Ukraine. And I became transfixed. I became so fascinated in that era and that world. Uh, so I wrote my undergraduate thesis about, about Krakow and Galicia around 1900, around the time of his birth, and then kind of pursued him further through, uh, through the 20th century. He was murdered, tragically, during World War II. And he becomes a kind of figure for the book. And then that world of people in his constellation, Vidkevich, Gombrowicz, and then a whole other set of writers, Fonda Siekla, a Hungarian writer who's wonderful, Jula Krudi, later writer, Bohumil Hrabal, lots of actually very funny writers. Actually, this is a something I love about Eastern Europe is it has one of the most tragic, difficult histories and some of the funniest, just hilarious writers like Yaroslav Hasek. And I, I kind of work, weave that through the book, try to have some of that sense of tragedy and sense of humor. What distinguishes Eastern Europe from other parts of Eurasia? That's a great question. And some people would say not that much. And I say quite a lot. I think it really is distinctive from both Western Europe to the West and kind of the Russian Central Asian steppe lands to its East, that there is an actual distinction. There's actual cohesion to, to what I'm calling Eastern Europe. And I have a big definition of Eastern Europe. Some people have a small one. Some people see it's just the former communist countries. I am including everything between the German lands to the West and kind of Russia to the East. Every country that's smaller than Russia, essentially, Finland and Greece kind of could be in it, but but aren't. But we can, 
get into the reasons. I actually think northern Greece fits in. But what's distinctive is a different kind of social organization than you find in either of those two bracketing areas. A different relationship to religion, different relationship to diversity, different kind of diversity. It's not the only diverse place. And this goes back to the Middle Ages, goes back to very far. And I try to kind of trace out how some of this process of, of a uniqueness, this uniqueness was shaped. And speaking in broad generalizations, in the Middle Ages, Western Europe starts religiously and ethnically diverse and becomes gradually more homogenous. States are much more centralized. States have much more central power. And they start using it in the Middle Ages to expel their Jews and then when they can to reconquer Muslim lands, convert them, expel the Muslims. So you're losing that Jewish part, that Muslim part. In Eastern Europe, you're gaining diversity. States are weak, but they're also need resources. They're thinly populated and kings say, we need tradesmen, we need mercenaries, we need soldiers, we need craftspeople. And they're inviting in quite actively uh, Jews, Muslims at times to fight other Muslims or to, to settle, Germans, Flemings, people from West who have mining expertise. And you start having this very dense interwoven tapestry of different languages and religions assigned to different social categories. And you have places, and I think this is quite unique about Eastern Europe, where class, religion, and language all start matching up and are all different depending on each class. So landowners, nobility will speak one language and have one religion. Tradesmen, merchants will have another religion, speak another language. Peasants will speak a third language and often belong to a third religion. That's kind of a template. It's not perfect in every spot, but it is something that is common from Latvia down to Albania. You find this kind of pattern and it's really different because Russia too. Russia, although it has nomads to its south, it has group pockets of pagans disease, it becomes much more homogenous too. It becomes much more Russian all down the social ladder. And Russia really only gains its Jewish population when it acquires it from Poland, from Poland-Lithuania, when it has this problem that tries to deal with essentially the containment strategy, which we call the Pale of Settlement, the Pale being literally the boundary that they put in to keep all those Polish-Lithuanian Jews out, to keep that diversity, to make a dam against that kind of diversity. So there's something I think quite distinctive. I think there are other parts of the world, northern Mesopotamia, Lebanon, northern Iraq, that has that kind of diversity. Southeast Asia has some of it, that diversity that runs through the entire society and you can find it in every village and every town. But I think in Eurasia, there is something really unique to Eastern Europe in that way. In your book, you write, take a map and circle Vienna, Istanbul and St. Petersburg. Eastern Europe is the sum of everything that happened in the middle of those three. How much control have the peoples of Eastern Europe had over their own destiny throughout history? I'd say they had some control, but not as much as they would have liked. This isn't a story purely of imperial subjugation. Even though, kind of at, at, at by like 1800 or so, virtually every part of Eastern Europe, every part of what I call Eastern Europe, is under the rule of essentially three empires, the Ottoman, the Russian, and Austro-Hungarian. The Austro-Hungarian monarchy, whether or not it's an empire, you could debate, but those three states. Uh, there's an earlier history, a medieval history of independent statehood in most of the region, 
from the Balkans up through at least Poland, Lithuania, not really the Baltics except Lithuania for a little bit, but of independent kingdoms that lose their independence one by one to the Ottomans and to Austria-Hungary through incorporation, through conquest, through marriage. And then there's another 20th century history. A 20th century history that also oscillates between local control and imperial subjugation. That there's a, a kind of moment of local sovereignty in the interwar period. The, the empires all get broken up. After World War I, there's a blossoming of independent states, all of them with internal problems, all of them kind of caught between rising Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, and then all ultimately either conquered by Nazi Germany, by the Soviet Union, and often by both, which creates that incredibly compressed, intense amount of violence. Really what Tim Snyder calls, calls the bloodlands is that area that's conquered by both powers. And then Eastern Europe is largely under the sway of uh, the Soviet Union. Although Yugoslavia and Albania kind of stand out from that, they're still in that same mold. And then another return to sovereignty after that. So it, it oscillates, I think, in people's lives, in the lives of my family, there's a feeling of being the plaything of history, of having little control over your individual destiny and it being swept up in these currents coming from outside. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What was the impact of the Ottoman conquest of the Balkans? It's an interesting question, a controversial one depending who you ask. The memory of the Ottoman conquest in the Balkans is, with a few small exceptions, very negative. Very negative. An, an age of darkness. If you ask like, Serbian historians, Bulgarian historians, the kind of uh, mainstream Balkan historiography of the past century, that the Christian kingdoms that were submerged in kind of the Ottoman onslaught, they lost their, their tradition of independence, usually lost their nobility, or they really converted, and lost contact with Europe. 
that they lost contact with the Renaissance, they lost contact with the intellectual currents happening in the rest of the Christian world, and that only when the Ottoman yoke was cast off did they rejoin that European current. Now, if you go to the parts of the Balkans that are still majority, have a Muslim majority or Muslim plurality in Bosnia, in Kosovo and Albania, that history is somewhat different. Albania actually really respects its, its kind of anti-Ottoman hero, Skanderbeg, who stood up against the Ottomans, who's a Christian leader. But they're also a majority Muslim country that has a lot of respect for, and, and in which Albanians did quite well in the kind of the wider Ottoman world. And so there isn't quite that rejection of Ottoman history. And in Bosnia, it actually is quite an important kind of central part of their identity. Recently, and I think this process is only starting, historians have started to reevaluate that story of, of centuries of darkness of the Ottoman yoke. Particularly, there's a, a Dutch architectural historian who's quite kind of remarkable guy, uh, started as a, as a stonemason, started, got really interested in traditional Ottoman architecture and taught himself how to build it, how to actually craft it out of stone. And then he's like, well, I can make it. Then taught himself Ottoman Turkish and went into the archives and tried to understand how these buildings, how this incredible rich collection of architecture across the Balkans, which is quite imperial. A lot of it has been lost or demolished, but these physical remains of the empire, how they came into being. And in exploring that, he kind of found that there was a tremendous amount of urban growth, cultural flourishing of Islamic Christian collaboration, cooperation, coexistence, that depending on your perspective, it wasn't an age of darkness. It was actually an age of, in some ways, human flourishing. And some people have picked that up and have tried to explore, the, especially the Ottoman kind of golden years of the 16th, 17th century, the amount of urban development of architectural construction that occurred in the Balkans and really kind of rehabilitate those kind of lost centuries. Sarajevo, which this was entirely cre constructed, created by the Ottomans. And so were numerous other towns across the Balkans. They were woven very deeply into that empire. There was oppressive taxation. It wasn't necessarily as oppressive as places in the West. So there's a, we're in the process of a moment of, of recalibration, reevaluation of what is still a pre-contested history. Following World War I, several new nations emerged in Eastern Europe, many of which were gripped by years of political crisis and authoritarianism. Why was this? So after 1918, after the end of World War I, the, the great empires broke up or were broken up, and you get the first kind of flourishing of, of independent Eastern Europe. Uh, Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia all become countries for the first time. Yugoslavia is created. Uh, there's a independent Serbia, but it expands to become this kingdom of the South Slavs. Poland is reborn. Poland had lost its independence in the 18th century, as it was in the partitions, as it was kind of carved up between Russia, Prussia, and Austro-Hungary, and so ceased to exist for almost 120 years, and now it was reborn. Hungary became an independent country, having had a quasi-independence in Austro-Hungary, had a, had a quasi suzerainty within this kind of strange dual system. It now becomes a independent country, but a much shrunken one, which caused a lot of hostility and bitterness. And Romania expands. Bulgaria expands slightly, contracts. Then Czechoslovakia is carved entirely out of the remains of Austro-Hungary. And, and two somewhat different, linguistically similar, but socially quite different parts, the Czech part and Slovak part, combined into one. So why did those countries not succeed democratically? I'll say one did. 
Czechoslovakia was quite a quite a successful democracy. Czechoslovakia had a had a multi-party system, had free and fair elections, was kind of seen as maybe the, hopefully the Switzerland of Eastern Europe, and then it got carved apart by in 1938 by Hitler with uh, with Western approval. But that was the that was a real exception that it was it was this functioning democracy, and all the others succumbed to some degree, usually to quite a large degree, to authoritarianism. Try the royal authoritarianism like in Yugoslavia, or a kind of right wing dictators like Pusutsky, who, but also not fascism, except for a kind of fascist moment in Romania. Fascist parties were largely kept out by right wing authoritarians. The roots of that democratic weakness, one, were economic weakness, vast illiteracy, vast part of the population, a peasantry that was could be easily bought, manipulated, ignored. International crises, the uh, Great Depression, and for each country there was a, usually some kind of uh, irredentist problem, a question of territories to be won back or regained or lost that could drive a right-wing government to power. But also Europe as a whole, and sometimes get lost, Europe as a whole was going through an authoritarian moment. It was true in Spain in Italy, in Portugal, all across the continent, you have right-wing, usually right-wing, but not fascist powers. And that's it fits into that broader European uh, pattern of kind of decades of crisis. Which I guess, of course, is also fueled by fear of the Bolshevik Revolution and its legacy. What is the Ringelblum archive and why is it of particular significance to you? My family, especially my Jewish family, my, my parents are both the children of Jewish fathers who survived the war survived the war in the Soviet Union and fighting on the Soviet side, and about a broad, bigger Jewish families that lived um, in Warsaw and in nearby villages. So during the war, some of my family went east, survived in the Soviet Union, which is a typical story for Polish Jews who survived. Most didn't survive in Poland itself. Some few did. The stories are usually very difficult. That did happen, but the larger number survived in the Soviet Union, and then part didn't, part stayed. In fact, my, my grandfather begged his cousin to c- come with us, you know, that the week of the invasion, the German invasion, said, come with us, come with us to, to the Soviet Union. She said, no, I've lived in Austria. I remember the German occupation of Warsaw in World War One, which people did. The Germans occupied Warsaw, and they were completely decent. They treated us all well. They paid for everything. It's going to be fine. And the Soviet Union was its own scary difficult foreign place in which, in fact, people, some people in my family, you know, starved or deported. So it was a very difficult choice. And the part of the family that stayed in Warsaw for the most part, and then were forced into the Warsaw ghetto, essentially disappeared. We we know very little. I mean, we can presume that they died in Treblinka, where most people did. They might have died of disease. They might have starved. They might have been shot before then. There might have been some other camps they could have gone to, usually, Treblinka was in that story, but there's no documentation. There's no eyewitness account. There's not even there's not even a number or a name. They just go into this black hole and disappear. The Warsaw Ghetto was enormous. It was hundreds of thousands of people uh, and uh, liquidated quite quickly and savagely. So it's it's a real kind of historical abyss. The exception, a major exception, is this thing called the Ringelblum Archive. And Emanuel Ringelblum was a historian. He's a real patron, real he had a real interest in specifically 
Eastern European Jewish culture. He was from Vilnius, and he was interested in preserving and studying and archiving, and this is even before the war, the lives of Jews where they lived then. The, the Yiddish-speaking world of Poland, of Lithuania, of, of that, that kind of Eastern European crucible, and just in the politics of the people who stayed, who weren't emigrating, who weren't going to America, weren't going to Israel. He was interested in that. And during the war, he was in Warsaw, and he immediately set about building an archive, and kind of a Noah's Ark for the Warsaw Ghetto, of documents, of scouring when people were killed or deported, of going to their homes and getting documents, of having people write reports, of finding anything they could document, because they couldn't really communicate with the outside world. So all they could do was gather and hope that they could preserve this. And he had other people working in this organization, Onik Shabbos. And as the last days of the ghetto, there was a ghetto, uh, there were ghetto clearances, and then there was a ghetto uprising, and then it was clear that there wasn't going to be any ghetto any longer. They were actually, the Germans killed everything, everyone they could find and actually demolished it street by street. They actually destroyed all the buildings in that part of Warsaw. 1943, they took what they could of the, of the archive, the actual documents, and put them in three steel milk cans, three kind of large, I don't know how many gallons, but those, you know, big stainless steel milk cans that you would, you would use to transport large amounts of milk. Packed them with documents, sealed them up, buried them. And then everyone involved essentially died, was killed. And then after the war, two of those three milk cans were dug up from the rubble. And the documents were in terrible shape. They had absorbed moisture, they'd, they'd mildewed, but they were readable. And they've been cataloged, they've been archived, they've been inventoried. And one of those documents kind of miraculously tells the story of my, uh, my mother's aunt, my mother's aunt Rose, Aruja, who was killed very early in the German occupation, before, when the ghetto already existed, but before it was clear what the full German plan was before the final solution was evident. She had crossed out of the ghetto to work. She had an infant child named Jacob, who she was trying to support, and she was caught on the tram outside the ghetto, denounced, arrested, put in a women's prison on, on Gamusha Street, out of an infamous prison, and then executed with 16 other women machine gunned in, in the basement. And someone who was in that prison, who saw, saw it all happen, described everything she saw, wrote it all down. And that, that little piece of pinkish paper managed to find its way into the milk can and be deciphered in the 40s, be digitized in the you know, last decade. And I, I found that and I could get the recover that one piece, that one story from my family. There are many, many more relatives in the ghetto, some, most of whose stories I have no, no concrete information about. This one I know in great detail, harrowing detail, what happened, thanks to this project of really historical rescue, one of the most incredible kind of historian's deeds, I think, of the 20th century. Think of Mark Bloch being a kind of his, historian hero of the war. I think Emmanuel Ringelblum deserves to be re- remembered in the same way. How did the region become Sovietized? What were the key features of this process? And who were some of the so-called little Stalins that came to govern over its nations? The process was largely accomplished with, with Soviet military power, although not in the most direct way, not through outright brutal imposition. It was felt by Stalin that it had to be done in his, uh, his coterie, that the appearance 
of democracy had to be maintained at least for a few years after the war. So it was done through, there's a Hungarian nickname for this called salami tactics, where you, you take a slice and then another slice and then another slice, and then you have the whole salami. First, usually the Communist Party was made a major coalition member and had its main ministries and then had control of the army and then had control of the police and then had control of the elections and then had full control of everything. And that kind of happened between 45 and 48. This ostensibly gradual process of consolidation, really the kind of force is all on the side of the communist parties in the Soviet Union. The exception is Czechoslovakia, again, a kind of uh, oddball. They vote communists into power. They kind of straddle east and west. They vote the communists into power and then their own local communist stage effectively a coup, taking what was a, not a majority, but a plurality vote and turning it into total power. A little bit like the Nazis were, weren't voted in with a majority in 33, they had a plurality, and then they expand that power through a coup. And then you get the, the little Stalins. The Stalin lives to 53. Stalinism really reigns across the region for, for not that long, but is incredibly transformative and powerful, 48 to 53, most places. And his mini Stalins kind of range. There's a Poland's is a very gray, uninteresting figure named Bolesov Bierut. In Hungary is Matyash Rakoshi, who's an extraordinary, ugly, bald, beetle-browed man who, who really goes as far as he can go into the cult of personality and has his image and has his template everywhere he can possibly put it. Clement Gottwald, a name I, I kind of grew up hearing because my dad went to Gottwald High School. Also, this kind of hard-bitten, working-class party leader, possibly syphilitic, who kind of remarkable thing is that he died along with Stalin. He went to Stalin's funeral and died right away like a week after Stalin. People said, this is, this is so loyal to Stalin. He died when the leader died. And actually, um, Poland's little Stalin, Beirut, died when the Khrushchev secret speech happened. And possibly was triggered by that, that the revelations of Stalin's crimes caused a kind of health crisis that killed him too. So they, they emulated Stalin in life and in death. And some of them, the way Lenin and Stalin for a while were memorialized through kind of mummification, there were Eastern European versions of that. Gottwald in Czechoslovakia was mummified and kept in a kind of climate-controlled capsule through the 50s and, and early 60s. And so was Dimitrov, who was a common turn leader, kind of the hero of the Reichstag fire in Bulgaria, this kind of really trying to transplant the cult of Stalin and make it into miniature in each country, nationalize it, but keep it part of the Soviet world. And in this kind of strange mini version, because none of these people had the gravity of Stalin for good or evil, you know, he did have this outsized role in World War II. He had this whole history of the 30s. These are much smaller figures, even in their own countries. These are real puppets. But to kind of kindle that flame of almost worship made it seem kind of, kind of comical and uh, was to a lot of people. How did the new communist regimes confront traditional sources of authority like religion in Eastern Europe? They fought them as best they could. They really, this was a deep predicament, nowhere more so than in Poland, although it was a predicament across the region, that the Stalinization of Eastern Europe happened, of course, much faster, much more dr kind of drastically than the Soviet Union. Because in the Soviet Union, you had a kind of long preparatory period in the 20s. You know, there was a, a vacillation. There was, you didn't do it all at once. There was actually, there's a radical phase and then it 
softened and then became more radical. There was a back and forth, and there were decades of fighting backwardness, fighting religion. And in Eastern Europe, they tried to do it all at once. They tried to do it in, in this tight window, starting in 48, most places. You've been this plural, multi-religious, quite pious, often quite economically backward society. Now you're modern. Now you're atheist. Now you're no more superstition. Now it's science and technology. And that met a lot of resistance. There was a, um, a kind of rash of miracles happened a lot of places, especially Poland, which I know the Polish story well. There were similar things in, in Czechoslovakia, Hungary, across the region. The Virgin Mary fought back. The, the saints fought back. People saw things and felt things or thought, thought they felt things. They saw the Virgin Mary. They saw strange lights. They actually had visions. They were convinced that the world was ending or that World War III was going to happen. And it was left to the authorities, especially the secret police, to start fighting apparitions. And apparitions are a kind of traditional feature of folk religion across across Eurasia, across Europe. But now they became really political. Now is a real issue of national security if the Virgin Mary appear, appeared in a field to a little girl. Because the moment it happened, thousands of people would flock there. They'd start gathering holy water. They'd start demonstrating. They'd start talking. This happened in Lublin and actually led to violence and arrests, possibly deaths. Because people started gathering, people immediately have pilgrimages, and you have to stop that kind of unsanctioned organization. You had the development of kind of anti-miracle squads, or it's handbooks on how to stop miracles. So there's a secret police, at least in Poland, a handbook on what to do, and this happened enough that you had to write a handbook, what to do when there's an apparition, how to disperse the crowd, how to destroy whatever object is being inhabited or possessed. It's a case where a little girl saw saw the Virgin Mary in a field of sorrel. So they went and they spread quicklime to kill all the sorrel and cordon off the field. And then people would still try and get in. If a holy spring started, you had to cement in the holy spring, etc. They were playing whack-a-mole with the Virgin Mary, really, because the Virgin Mary, who had long helped, you know, people or shown up or spoken to to young virgins or old men, now every time she showed up, it was a political problem. And you had to try to fight it, try to suppress it. And an amazing collision of old and new, which I think is really characteristic of Eastern European history. Why was the reckoning with history so effective, indeed instrumental to those nations that abandoned communism in the 1990s, but so destructive in Yugoslavia? That's such an interesting question. because, And one of the great ironies of recent history in, in Eastern Europe, because Yugoslavia broke with the Soviet Union very early, 48 Tito, it was not liberated by the Red Army. It was liberated by its own partisan forces led by Josip Broz Tito. They split quite early. But even after that split, kind of a domestic Stalinism led by Tito, they, they just persecuted Stalinists who were the patrons. People who were loyal or thought to be loyal to the Soviet Union were the targets rather than people who were thought to be loyal to Tito. That Tito-Stalin split reverberated across the region. But starting in the 60s, Yugoslavia really became a kind of oasis of Eastern Europe. It was not under the Soviet thumb. It became part of the non-aligned countries. Yugoslavs could increasingly work and shop in Italy and Germany, could go abroad. People from Western Europe could go and start holidaying and spending time in Yugoslavia is probably the most open, probably the most of all the Eastern European states. Uh, it was run by its domestic communist party, but it was the least, arguably the least repressive, although they had their own 
internal problems, but a real, you know, relative oasis through the 70s into the 80s when they have more economic problems and Tito dies and the separate republics start going their own way. But if you were looking at the map in 1980 or 1988 and you looked at what's going to be the hotspot in Eastern Europe, what country is going to have the easiest time of transitioning? You might say Yugoslavia. It had great natural resources, great kind of natural the natural ability to, to have tourism seemed pretty stable, seemed relatively open. Uh, and it becomes the place of the, of the worst bloodshed and the worst communal strife and the worst ethnic violence in, in Europe since the World War II. And the reason why would take a book, would take a couple books, but it has a lot to do with that federal structure of Yugoslavia, that it is a collection of states with their own language, religion, tradition, kept together somewhat loosely, and separate parties, separate leaders who benefited a great deal from exploiting fears, exploiting tensions in order to maintain their own power path after that 89 collapse. That the local, either communists or nationalists, could foment and actually use separate television stations, separate media in each of these not quite countries, but almost countries, to play off against each other, to create fears, and then use those fears to cement their own power. And the master of that was Slobodan and Milosevic in Serbia, who discovered in the late 80s that by stoking fears of Serbs being exploited, attacked, marginalized outside Serbia in, in Croatia or in Kosovo, which is an autonomous region within Serbia, that he could solidify his power. That, that was an incredibly powerful politically thing to do, especially as talking about self-management or communism, that wasn't interesting to anyone anymore. But talking about, they want to beat us, I won't let them beat us. That became politically powerful. And actually the, the ethnic plurality, the extreme interweaving of different peoples across Yugoslavia meant that as the country fell apart, there was a premium to try and grab territory and to grab territory and make it ethnically pure, to make your claim on the territory stronger. And so you have the, this wave of ethnic cleansing that was unlike anything we've seen in Europe since, since the 40s. What have the consequences of the transition from communism to market-based economics been on the peoples of Eastern Europe? The immediate consequences were quite drastic and quite negative. But the short-term effects of the transition from communism to state socialism to capitalism were of a mass social disaster. You could actually see that and people shrank. People's heights went down. And that usually happens when there's a, an economic crisis and a food crisis. That generation that was born right around the transition was uh, a few centimeters shorter than the generation before and the generation after. There's a huge spike in suicide. In the, in the late 80s, early 90s, Hungary, Lithuania, Latvia had the world's highest rates of suicide. People's savings disappeared overnight. They had savings. There was a whole socialist project. The people's workplaces dissolved. Whole industries collapsed. In Romania, the, the, the coal miners invaded Bucharest and, and really propped up this regime as their livelihood, their lifestyle collapsed. The, the, ironically, the shipyards the start of the whole solidarity movement, most of them went out of business one, one after another as they were no longer competitive. So in the short term, in the early 90s, and I remember I actually lived in Poland through that. I lived through hyperinflation, 
used to check the rate of the swote against the dollar every day because every day it was it was less. It was it was just currency was losing its value uh, at an astronomical pace. It was quite quite dire. In the long term, I'd say it's been mostly positive. Mostly positive for especially younger people. For older people, and depends where you are, depends who you talk to, but older people's lives were very heavily disrupted. Their work was disrupted. Their pensions became worthless. They had difficulty. They went from social housing to having to, to navigate a very complicated web of privatization and exploitation. And, and there were immediately, there was a, there was a rash of, of pyramid schemes across Eastern Europe, especially in Albania and Romania, which, which wiped out people's savings and Romania in Albania led to civil war as people try to navigate this new market economy that they had very little experience with. But in the long term, there's been huge growth, especially the part of Eastern Europe that's in the EU. Huge growth, transformative growth, transformative progress, transformation in a huge rebound in, in height and lifestyle, and even a closing of what's called the European happiness gap. This is something social scientists measure. And I'm a historian, I'm not a social scientist, so I can get into the surveying how this is. But for three decades, this is a very consistent finding in social science, is that there that Eastern Europe is less happy than Western Europe. If you poll people, you try and, and norm for for income and, and age and everything, you would find that people are happier on average in the West than the East. And around 2017, 2018, that gap closed. Eastern Europe is no longer or was no longer as unhappy as as the West. And actually that came from two sides. Eastern Europe, people's life satisfaction went up, if you measure it. Western Europeans went down as a consequence of a last economic crisis, malaise, what have you. But that converged and that separation, that gap in living standard, living happiness has, has for much of the region vanished. And then the places where that's not really true are places where there's open or frozen conflict. Frozen conflict like in Bosnia, especially the Serbian part of Bosnia, open conflict in Moldova and especially Ukraine. Do you believe that Eastern Europe is at risk of disappearing? I think it has, in a way, disappeared. It's disappeared twice over. It's the history of the 20th century. The history of the 20th century, especially since the start of World War II, is the story of its dissolution. That Eastern Europe, when I described it as this, this place of unique most fractal diversity, of diversity woven through society, of a place where, where in any village or any town you can see three churches, three languages, four churches, or temples, not just churches. That's really been put an end to. There are, there are traces of it. There are moments, places you can feel it. But World War II essentially subtracted the Jewish part of it. The huge population transfers after World War II got rid of a lot of the, the ethnic intermingling. These countries went from Poland, went from being, for instance, an extremely heterogeneous place with a 60% like Polish, 30% minority, to being incredibly homogenous countries, religiously homogenous too. Uh, Albania's still like religiously plural, but it's not very ethnically plural. And then that, that process culminates in the 80s with expulsions of Muslims from, from some Turks from Bulgaria, and then the, the Yugoslav wars, which also separate out that diversity within Yugoslavia and the Balkans and Kosovo. So that, that old world of Eastern Europe has traces left, 
but it's not a lived reality the way it was, say, in 1914. Another part of it is the, that distinctiveness that I grew up with in, in the 80s, at least, in the 90s, of, of going from west to east and kind of crossing a, some kind of barrier, some kind of, some kind of, you went, you, you used to go, you used to land in, you know, East Germany or Prague or Warsaw or Sofia, and you were in a different world. Things worked differently. The stores were different. They were often empty. The way all of society was arranged was different. And you actually just felt in the air. You could smell differently. The lignite coal was, like, brown coal was being burned. You didn't have soap. So it was, it was you immediately felt this change in like, air pressure. And that's gone. I mean, you go to the capitals of Eastern Europe. There are differences, but it's much more, much of it is part of a of bigger European continuum. You have to go deep into Eastern Europe to find that that's real sense of difference. You have to kind of go, if you go into northern, far northern Romania, if you go to the Albanian mountains, you feel like you can recapture some of that. But if you're in, in downtown Warsaw, you don't, you know, you could be in Belgium. I mean, architecture is different. You, you have different sense of people, but people are dressed the same. People are listening to the same music. And the places that remain outside of that kind of Europe-wide gradient are are actually in, in direct physical peril. So like, Ukraine is, you know, under Russian attack. Moldova keeps, is, 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 on, is on a knife's edge politically and has this whole part of it itself that is under Transnistria, that's under kind of quasi-Russian rule or separatist rule. Kind of the uneasy situation in Kosovo or, or the Republika Srpska in Bosnia, this, these kind of frozen conflicts that keep these places out of that, that European mainstream. But that itself is a kind of peril. So I think there is a, um, there's a way in which the old world of Eastern Europe, much of it perished in the 20th century, and the newer world of Eastern Europe that, that created by the settlement after World War II is also either vanishing due to prosperity or directly imperiled through conflict. That was Jacob Mikanowski. Jacob's book, Goodbye Eastern Europe, An Intimate History of a Divided Land, is out now, published by One World. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. 